Jacob Neal. This is hell. This is not contrarian radio. This is hell, although when considering the topic of our next interview, you might think we are very much contrarian radio. After all, we are featuring a conversation on the harms of big alcohol and the reluctance by the left to address the capital power of the centralized state-sponsored yet completely privatized, loosely regulated industry that seemingly exists above the law. And we're having this talk on our last show prior to this Saturday's This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party that is happening in a bar where alcohol is consumed, a bar that is located directly beneath where I'm sitting right now, a bar that is owned by a dear friend. So I got all sorts of not only contrarianism going on today, but I'm also knee-deep in conflicts of interest, especially because I really enjoy drinking and expect to enjoy drinking at the 26th anniversary party that's happening this Saturday, September 17th, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 in Chicago, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood with live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and the closing of the This Is Hell-sponsored art show, this is art, but that doesn't mean we're letting the harms caused by big alcohol and global capital off the hook either. Alcohol is a long history of subjugation and exploitation, playing a role in colonialism, contributing to racism, racialized policing, and the senseless war on drugs, fueling the power of global capital. And that's not to mention, as today's, uh, today's guest does, over a dozen substance use experts writing in a 2010 book about alcohol, quote, it has the potential to adversely affect nearly every organ and system of the human body. No other commodity sold for ingestion, not even tobacco, has such wide-ranging and adverse physical effects. With alcohol use surging 25% in 2020 during the first pandemic year, and more crises on the horizon, including climate change, it's a good time to consider the harms alcohol can do to society. And if there's an alternative for psychoactive fun that's, you know, not so deadly, in a few minutes we will consider why it seems like nobody is doing anything about protecting the public from the harms of alcohol when we speak with author, freelance journalist, and Ph.D. student James Wilt, who has written a new book entitled... Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. We want to thank Scott Price of CKUW in Winnipeg, who suggested James be a guest on the show. James is also author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars, Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber, and Elon Musk. His writing has appeared in many publications, including The Globe and Mail, The Walrus, Vice, Canadian Dimension, Briar Patch, The Narwhal, Passage, National Observer, CBC Calgary, Alberta Oil, Ricochet, Ricochet, and Rabble. James is, boy, we haven't had somebody on from Rabble in a really long time. James is currently studying the ecology of oil spills. And you can follow James on Twitter at James underscore the letter M as in Mary underscore Will. I'm your bitter blind broke, Wilt, W-I-L-T. I'm your bitter blind broke, 
Gaptooth Radio Show live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how have you been? Been doing good. I got my bivalent booster shot. Oh, you did? Down there at the Walgreens at Western and Granville. Done my part to stem the tide of this horrible virus. <laughs> was there a big crowd? You know, there kind of was. I don't think they were used to uh, this kind of action. It was all happening at the back of the store at the pharmacy. Everybody was crowded back there. Yeah, I've been, uh, when I got mine a couple weeks ago, uh, same thing. It was pretty packed. Uh, there was one person who said, I'm so glad that you're actually running out of vaccines because that means that people are actually getting them. Did you have any adverse reaction like I did? No, it's been all right. It's been pretty chill. I didn't get a great night's sleep, so it's hard to separate things, but nothing like the wooden joints that you were oh describing. Oh, my God. I felt like a puppet. It, yeah. was, it was the worst. I felt like a marionette and somebody was pulling my strings just to be a dick. Uh, make sure you check out uh, producer Dan Hill's comic book, 50 Flip Experiment, at flip, 50flipexperiment.com. And we'll have uh, copies of Dan's comic book at our merch table during our upcoming 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party, which will include live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and an art show. And if you drop by back in uh, July for the opening of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art exhibit, you will still want to join us for the closing party of This Is Art this Saturday, September 17th. Not only because the opening party was a blast during the celebration of Carrie's Carrie's Lounge being in operation for 50 years, but also because there will be art on display that was not featured at the opening. For instance, last year you may have heard me mention that we were suddenly receiving these beautiful prints in the mail with phrases like free your mind and your ass will follow or a quote by self-described black lesbian mother uh, war- warrior, poet, uh, Andre, Audre Lord, who said, uh, uh, life is uh, very short and what we must do, and uh, what we do must be done in the now. Life is very short and what we do must be done in the now. So they have that printed on this beautiful, like eight by 10 inch, a piece of cardboard. It's just a stunning print. In fact, we got another in the mail in the last few days. This one is a quote by Eartha Kitt, who said, Greed is so destructive, it destroys everything. So far, we've received, I think, 17 of these prints, including one that seems to be everybody's favorite, which is in all capital letters, God is Trans. So last year, we were mentioning these mysterious prints on air, and I kept referring to them as art. That's when we got this letter in the mail. Greetings, citizens. We are Kennedy Prince, a conservative, anarchist, Negro-owned print shop located in Detroit's McDougal Hunt neighborhood. We are printers. We are not artists. If we were independently poor, we would send you some cash. But we ain't. So here are some cards you can sell. Yes, once they are sold out, we will send more, but different. Our friend Mimi Machete enjoys your podcast. They inform. Thanks, Kennedy Prince. And you will be able to see them all scattered on the walls downstairs in the beer garden and upstairs in the art gallery all over the place. We'll be uh, featuring these arts and displaying these piece, these prints, I should say arts, these prints. So come by and check that out. It's going to be something additional to the This Is Art show that we had earlier this year. We hope to see all of you here for the anniversary and listener appreciation party, including musical performances by Take Yokoyama's Mahjong Crib, Pure Cane Trio, 
Trio with Ted Sirota on drums, Dan Chase on organ, and Dave Miller on guitar, and Trinity Star Ultra. That's this Saturday, September 17th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with doors opening at 3 p.m. in Take Yokoyama's Mahjong Crib, taking the stage at 4. Raffle drawings are scheduled for uh, to begin at uh, 6 p.m., then a second drawing following Pure Cane Trio and the final drawing of the night, taking place right before the first performance of the night by or the final performance of the final musical performance of the night and that is by trinity star ultra dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is in the 26 year history of this program which moment topic or guest made you mutter this is hell the loudest (laughs) so in terms of sheer decibels when did you most loudly mutter this is hell (laughs) The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The cell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or you can just come over here to the... Uh, this is Hell 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party because all of our merchandise will be available there as well. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us or you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth as we do each and every week. And now a word from our sponsor. And as we are completely listener-supported, that means our sponsor is you and like detroit's kennedy prince we also started mysteriously receiving in the mail a few years back a wonderful assortment of cbd products from a place in maine called wild folk farms which you can find online at wildfolkfarm.com first i had no faith whatsoever in cbd products i loves me my thc but cbd whatevs for years, I have been uh, mentioning on air that I suffer from a combination of anxiety, depression, a chronically bad back from an on-the-job work injury when I was much younger, diverticulitis, a disorder which nearly killed me earlier this year. I suffer from all of that. I, w- I was losing a lot of sleep and waking throughout the night and with lower back agony. Then suddenly I started receiving in the mail CBD stuff from Wild Folk Farms. And for me, it worked. The tinctures seemed to calm my nerves. Others, uh, other the tinctures helped me with my sleep. A balm they have does wonders for my back pain. And every so often, a new package shows up with more tinctures and balms, and I cannot thank Wild Folk Farms enough. I was very, very skeptical, and I still am of CBD. Yet their products, you know, either just because I think they're going to work, some for some reason they work. So I thought I wanted to share this with our listeners, and I contacted the good folks at Wild Folk Farms and asked if we could feature their products during the raffle at the upcoming anniversary party, and here's their reply. Hell yes, we can do that, and you're so welcome. So sorry to hear about the health gauntlet you've been going through. I suffer from some severe chronic conditions, and so I sympathize with protracted complications when things go awry. We hope you're patched up and feeling better. Between ADHD and the level of busy lately, we haven't been tuning into This Is Hell as much as we'd like, unfortunately. The world needs, unfortunately they say, they add the world needs Mr. Chuck Mertz to keep up the necessary podcast badassery. Please make sure to let us know if your personal stock runs low. We consider supplying you to be an ecosystem service that we're honored to be able to provide. I'll have a parcel inbound to arrive within the week. B 
be well. So all of this is to say, among the many This Is Hell-related prizes we will be giving away this weekend at this year's party during the raffle, we will be offering a selection of CBD products from Wild Folk Farms. Our, coming up, our conversation with James Wilt on socialism and alcohol. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell is, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest would you mutter or made you mutter, this is hell, to yourself, the loudest. In the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell, to yourself, the loudest. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this this week's moment of truth, and we'll tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show, or not. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell, and that is the nightmare that global capital, especially in the form of the alcohol industry, wants to impose on us without abandon, without regulation, with few laws to rein in the harms their products do. Their desire is to trigger our endless desire for more and more alcohol and being an intrinsic part of every one of our celebrations, like the one we're hosting this Saturday. Here to help us have a better understanding of big capital and why it needs to be challenged and, yes, overthrown. So instead of alcohol being about profiteering, it can be alcohol for the common good. Author, freelance journalist, and Ph.D. student James Wilt has written a new book entitled Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. Welcome to This Is Hell, James. Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. And again, thanks to Scott Price of CKUW in uh, Winnipeg, who suggested James be a guest on the show. You start off with the sentence, the war on drugs is a global genocide. While definitions of genocide vary and are up for debate, one is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Do you see the war on drugs as the deliberate killing of a specific group of people? And if so, is the goal to kill people? And what people do you believe are being targeted? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so yeah, I, I do believe that it it constitutes um, a global genocide, specifically against um, the poor, the racialized, um, the quote unquote surplus populations uh, of of the world. Um, and we can see this, you know, I'm I'm in Canada, you're in the U.S., um, but we can see it in, in basically every country where the U.S. led war on drugs has, um, you know, continually been been executed. Um, quite literally, is is just massive numbers of um, deaths um, in terms of Police, military, extrajudicial killings, um, but also the the overdoses, which are frequently toxic poisonings because of unregulated supply. Um, we've seen people just have you know complete lack of access to healthcare, housing, you know any kind of supports, um, just ongoing stigma, you know just stigmatization, which prevents them from getting these supports in the first place. Um, and again, you know, because I'm in Canada, I'm I'm watching the stats here most closely. But in uh, in British Columbia, our, our most westward province, um, in the first six months uh, of of this year, uh, over 1,200 people have have died of of what the province called overdoses, but which is the result of unregulated supply of drugs. And so, you know, to your point, that the people who are being um, killed off are are you know our family, our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones. Um, but they're ultimately seen by 
the state um, as ultimately disposable. Um, and so, you know, it, it is it is a, a pretty incendiary like way to to start the book to to charge genocide against um, the war on drugs. But I do think it's you know accurate based on um, what we know about not only like the local and the national impacts, but the the global as well. Um, I mentioned you know what's happening in the Philippines or Afghanistan or Colombia. Um, all of these um, impacts are very uh, closely knit together, and I, I think they have to be understood as part of this coherent whole. And you write that as people who use criminalized drugs have been demanding for many years, the only way out of this global nightmare is the legalization and regulation of all drugs. However, legalization of marijuana has led to corporatization, as we've discussed here on the show with many of our guests. That corporatization has pushed small, long-time legacy farmers out of business as the bottom drops out of a market within which these small farmers uh, can can at least try to compete. In Northern California and elsewhere, it has led to farmer suicides. So these farmers have gone from being criminals to becoming unemployed. Are our only choices criminalization that leads to what you call a genocide or legalization that puts longtime small-scale uh, farmers out of business, uh, forcing or, all in the name of uh, benefiting corporations? Are Those are only two choices, either criminalization or corporatization. Yeah, brilliant question. Thanks, Chuck. Um, yeah, so so I that's how I set it up at the beginning of the book, and I, I really want to push back at that notion that, that the option is um, you know, criminalization, prohibition, um, policing, incarceration, or like you say, uh, legalization and sort of capitalist domination, monopolization uh, of, of the drug supply. Um, I, I really do want to um, reflect specifically on alcohol, but like you say, also cannabis um, and say that this is this is probably one of the worst possible ways that you could think to legalize and regulate um, a, a drug supply in terms of not only the impacts on the workers, which has, you know, we ha also have to include the actual sellers or, or the quote unquote dealers of, of these things as well. Um, but, you know, the users of, of them, which are often the same people, but, you know, nevertheless, um, because the the objective of, um, you know, uh, profit oriented uh, organizations and businesses is to promote as much use of their product as possible and as much profit as possible. And so I think that really contradicts some of the underlying um, you know, public health goals of of what a proper legalization and, uh, and regulation push um, should be as well. Like in Canada, we've also had, you know, this recent legalization of um, cannabis as well, which is, you know, great on many fronts. It's not great on others in terms of expunging previous records and such. But what we've seen is just this incredible over-concentration of, of cannabis retail. Um, and this has led to a total oversaturation of supply. So a lot of the small retailers are um, going under as well as the industry begins to rapidly um, consolidate. And what that has meant is, like you say, in terms of the farmers in California, a lot of the workers in these um, retail spaces, which, which are non-union, um, oftentimes, you know, very poor scheduling, poor wages, are now losing their jobs as well. And so all of that is to say um, is that I think we really need to focus on um, sort of theorizing uh, a, a different way of legalizing and regulating, one, one which is grounded in public and collective ownership of um, of the drug supply. So what do you think happens to drug and alcohol policy if the focus is not on health and wellness or even incarceration, incarceration and death, but profit and revenue creation? Is profit and revenue creation what's best for health and wellness when it comes to drug and alcohol policy? Yeah, I really do think it's like fundamentally contradictory. Um, and like I, you know, at the beginning of the book, I Talk about how, you know, um, drugs obviously have many incredible benefits for people. Um, you know, as you were talking about just before the the upcoming um, 
uh, anniversary party, which sounds amazing. I, I have to add, I wish I could be there. But, um, you know, it's, you know, in the case of alcohol, uh, it's, it's an incredible drug for um, seeking pleasure and relaxation and socializing. Um, it has a lot of, you know, very well-established benefits, which, which go back um, many thousands of years. Um, and, you know, within a, a communal um, setting, you know, there, there is often, you know, overindulgence and, and these sorts of things, which um, should often be celebrated. But when it becomes monopolized by these gigantic companies, um, you know, the likes of AB Bev or Diageo or Heineken, um, these companies which have amalgamated hundreds of brands throughout the world uh, and are rapidly concentrating, um, you know, ownership and, and control through a whole bunch of different means. What this means is, is that, uh, you know, the ability for us to be able to forge um, what, you know, might be termed healthy or lower risk relationships with alcohol are, are really compromised. Um, so not to get too into the weeds, but um, there is a fairly well-established and developing understanding of what lower risk drinking um, looks like. And so the UK has this, you know, um, pretty good model and, and Canada actually just a couple of weeks ago announced that it was uh, pursuing it too. But what it ultimately um, kind of works out to is is about a drink a day. Um, and, it, it, you know, <laughs> I, it probably seems lower than expected for a lot of people. But what that means is it keeps your risk of dying from alcohol-related harm at below one in, one in 100. The problem is that when alcohol becomes, you know, um, sold and promoted for profit, as, as you mentioned, um, it becomes it's very difficult to um, sort of navigate what it looks like to have that kind of lower risk relationship um, with alcohol. And so I'm trying to, you know, kind of strike this, this balance between these, these two ideas on the one hand that, you know, we do want lower risk, um, use because, um, alcohol does create a whole bunch of harms, which I probably don't have to rattle off. Um, but at the, at the same time, we want people to be able to have, you know, great, you know, joyful experiences with their friends, with their loved ones, you know, all these sorts of things. And so, you know, I, I think in order to really be able to, to strike that balance, we need to um, really challenge what I term uh, big alcohol. When I was warning friends or arguing with friends about the legalization of marijuana and how I said it, we can't have this legalization, what we need is decriminalization. Legalization will lead to corporatization, and corporatization will force all these small-time or small-scale uh, legacy farmers out of business. Whenever I would bring that kind of thing up, you know, this is in the early 2000s, and people are saying, well, look, big alcohol isn't as powerful as you would think it is because there's the emergence, the advent of craft brewers. There's, it, there is space for alternative, uh, alternative beverages through craft brewers instead of having to only get uh, beverages from the, from big alcohol. They so they figured that there was going to be a space within legalized marijuana with a sense of craft brewing, a sense of you know this kind of small scale legacy uh, farming. So why, why do you think that uh, global alcohol has so much power when it does leave space? for craft brewers, and does that give us any optimism for what might be happening with the legalization of marijuana? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, for starters, um, you know, craft uh, brewers and, and also distillers and winemakers and all, all this kind of stuff um, do, you know, unequivocally make really exciting, experimental, interesting uh, beverages. A lot of them are, you know, owned at local or, you know, sort of community levels, you know, a handful of employees um, or whatnot. But sort of reflecting on, on you know, your description of, of what conversations were like, say, 20 years ago, I think there was uh, a great deal more hope that um, sort of the craft or the artisanal scene 
would provide this sort of um, gradual undermining of, of the monopoly of, of big alcohol or, you know, big cannabis or, or whatever kind of sector we want to um, talk about. But what we've seen, at least, you know, in the past um, decade, decade and a half is, um, <laughs> you know, like with uh, kind of a lot of other brands, um, the increased monopolization by big alcohol of these firms. So um, in, in the book, I draw quite heavily on um, a book from the 60s called Monopoly Capital by um, Barron and Sweezy. And um, I won't get too into it, but one of the things that I found really interesting that they noted was, you know, in terms of the, the small business um, sector or, or these smaller firms, they were speaking generally, but I apply this to sort of the craft scene, is that they, they don't, they're not seen by these monopoly capitals or these, you know, these large capitals as a threat. Um, instead, what they um, are often seen as is a place for these companies to sort of experiment, to come up with the innovations, um, to come up with the new ideas, because the larger companies are often, you know, very risk averse and want to have guaranteed profits. And so in that sense, these craft brewers um, can come up with these, you know, these great ideas, which they have. Um, and then these larger companies, the ABM Bevs, the Heineken's, the Diageo's, can either buy them directly, which we've seen in the case, you know, in Chicago with Goose Island, um, a very uh, controversial acquisition by um, ABM Bev, um, or um, they can basically replicate a lot of the innovations, um, aka steal a lot of the innovations that have been made by these these craft um, brewers. And so, you know, they can either buy them, they can either, uh, you know, steal their ideas, um, but either way, um, they don't pose a fundamental threat. The last thing I'll just say on this is that, um, you know, I, over the last decade, we within the quote-unquote craft uh, brewing scene, we've seen a lot of uh, concentration as well, in, and what, what that's resulted in is a lot of the um, the brewers that we would previously consider to be, you know, small scale have now got to the point where they're some of the largest brewers um, in the country or, you know, on the continent. And so it's really difficult to parse, you know, what actually constitutes, you know, what we might think of as an independent craft brewer um, versus what is either a very large brewer in its own um, right or that has been acquired by, by a, a larger company. Um, and so all this is to say um, that the, the, the hype or the appeal that craft beer um, or these other beverages would uh, eventually erode the sort of the hegemony of big alcohol is, has really not played out. And I think it really speaks to, to, the, to the raw power um, of, of these very large companies to be able to, um, to anticipate and to integrate um, sort of challenges to their power. I know you don't want to rattle off all of the harms that alcohol can do, but I'm going to. You write that beverage alcohol contributes to the deaths of some 3 million people around the world every single year via traumatic injuries, chronic diseases, self-harm, cancers, and alcohol use disorders, including alcohol dependency. Countless more people live with alcohol-related diseases, chronic pains, mental health issues, and various disabilities. As over a do dozen substance use experts wrote in a 2010 book about alcohol, it has the potential to adversely affect nearly every organ and system of the body, as I was citing earlier. So, again, I don't want you to list off exactly what I just did, but I, the bigger question I have for you is how informed are we about the dangers of alcohol? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say um, for the most part, not very. Um, so uh, a, a really um, interesting and, and kind of shocking um, development within alcohol science over the last couple of years has been um, its very close relationship with at least seven types of cancer. Um, and so, you know, of course, we we know of, you know, cancer causing properties of, of many other things. Um, but when it comes to alcohol, um, I think that these things have been 
um, you know, downplayed and marginalized by the industry itself. And so one very acute example of how this plays out, um, you know, in terms of the alcohol industry's relationship with that knowledge is that in the um, in a northern territory in, in Canada, in, in the Yukon, um, a couple of years ago, there was a, a, a scientific pilot project in which they were going to um, label, um, you know, a, a set of bottles with um, with cancer warnings, you know, the, the same kind of things that we see with tobacco products or whatnot. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was to gauge how this kind of impacts people's purchasing habits and, and knowledge and these sorts of things. Um, but basically, just as it got started, um, the three largest alcohol lobby groups in Canada threatened um, the, the scientists uh, and the funders with litigation. Um, and so the pilot project was um, canceled. They were still able to gather some, you know, meaningful results. But, um, you know, it was this very kind of acute um, example of, of how uh, the, the knowledge, in this case, of, of the cancer-causing properties of, of alcohol um, is is really diminished. So that's that's one example. I, I think you know more generally. I, I think people are like aware <laughs> that uh, alcohol can have you know negative impacts, whether it's drunk driving or whether it's um, just like falling on the street and hitting your head, or whether it's getting in fights. Like these kind of things are just you know common knowledge, and in some respect, that's kind of you know it's just like it, it's just considered part of the drinking experience. Um, but I do think that there is a lot um, that is being downplayed. Um, I think another, you know, interesting example of this, um, and this is like maybe less in terms of the actual harm, but the fact that, you know, nutritional information is um, not required on alcohol in a, a great deal of countries. So in Canada, alcohol is one of the few products in which you don't, you know, have to disclose calories, carbs, whatever, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, which, which is like a really interesting example when you compare it to say a non-alcoholic beer, which, which I enjoy often. And it requires that these, um, these uh, things are, are disclosed, even if it's like zero calories or whatnot. Um, and so to, to kind of compare and contrast that, I think is a, an interesting example um, too. So, you know, just to, to wrap up that point is I, I think it's, it's very much in the interest um, of, of alcohol companies, um, you know, the, the big ones, at least um, not to uh, disclose these harms, because in doing so, that's obviously going to result in people questioning their own relationship um, with how much they drink um, and potentially reducing it. And in doing so, that greatly um, would undercut the, the profitability uh, of the sector. There was one uh, study in the UK, which found um, I think it was 13 uh, billion uh, pounds worth of uh, alcohol would be or of profit would be lost uh, every year if if people in um, in Britain drank below the low risk drinking guidelines. So this is just an enormous amount of money that's that's on the table. And so all that's to say is that there's this pretty clear vested interest as to why the alcohol industry doesn't want people thinking or talking about this. You were mentioning uh, the kinds of warnings that you see on cigarette packages. And again, uh, citing uh, the study or the book, the 2010 book that you did earlier with a dozen uh, substance use experts writing uh, back then that it had that alcohol is the uh, potential to adversely affect nearly every organ and system of the body. That quote continues, no other commodity sold for ingestion, not even tobacco, has such wide ranging adverse physical effects. If that's the case to you, what explains the historically, uh, well, historically recent public reaction and growing opposition to tobacco, but not alcohol, if alcohol is a greater public health and safety hazard? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the the, the death count, if, if we want to just get into the real um, 
awful details. Um, like tobacco is unequivocally, um, you know, more dangerous based on what we know is I, I think it's uh, the estimation is, is 10 million a year uh, in terms of global deaths. Alcohol is 3 million, still an absolutely, you know, stunning um, number. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that um, what we have to be like aware of is that uh, the alcohol industry has learned a great deal from um, the tobacco industry experience. And so what happened, you know, not, not to get too into the weeds, but with the tobacco industry, it resulted in this um, global uh, binding treaty. You know, the treaty is, is critiqued and all that sort of thing for having big holes in it, but there's a series of, of massive um, settlements and agreements uh, that, you know, restricted the ability for tobacco companies to advertise, um, to, to, you know, push their products, to do all these sorts of things. We've seen the tobacco industry come up with different strategies to deal with that. Um, one is arguably uh, via things like Juul, um, which the tobacco industry has uh, big, big investments in. But also, I think, um, you know, maybe more relevant is, is the exporting of, of production um, to the global south, uh, which you know, where there's these big returns. But all this is to say is that alcohol, uh, the alcohol industry has learned a great deal from sort of what went wrong with with tobacco. Uh, you know, from our perspective, it would perhaps be what went right, but for them, it's what went wrong. Um, and so they they employ a lot of the same strategies uh, that um, the tobacco industry, and I also think the fossil fuel uh, industry uses. So for one example, it is, um, Sort of destabilizing um, or or questioning the science, but it's not in a way that you know fully rejects it. I think the alcohol industry has learned that that's not a good look and and will kind of be um, seized on. It's more um, you know when there's a when there's a big say WHO report that comes out, um, sort of like picking away at it in a way which um, sort of questions certain motivations or questions certain sentences to the point where um, you know, media will seize on, on a, a particular part of it. And that's kind of used to delegitimize um, the, the whole um, argument. And so I think that's like, well, that's one important um, thing that they've learned. Another is the alcohol industry is very cynically um, like sort of latched on to this language and this discourse of harm reduction. Um, and, you know, as, as we sort of talked about briefly before, like radical harm reduction is literally what's keeping criminalized um, drug users, you know, alive in, in, in the streets, um, so to speak. Um, but what the alcohol industry has done is kind of seized on that and said that, you know, we can come up with our own form of harm reduction in which we're like educating people about how to use, you know, alcohol in a responsible way. Um, and then, you know, there's been many front groups and lobby groups that have tried to push this. But at the end of the day, it's all communicated in a way which is very, um, what's been called strategically ambiguous. Um, so, you know, in the case of responsible drinking, you know, you ask someone, what does responsible mean? Um, that could mean like literally any number of things. Um, and so it, it, it kind of communicates a sense of, you know, we care, but, um, but in a way which doesn't actually, uh, you know, clearly communicates uh, what the risks and, and such are. So I, I think that these are ways that the alcohol industry has, has watched what happened. And in some cases, they had direct investments in tobacco and vice versa, uh, but they watch what happened and then they um, are kind of learning and trying to really posture themselves as as progressive and good corporate citizens and all this sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases it, it works. And I, I think the fact that this particular book um, does seem like somewhat controversial or contrarian or however we want to term it, I think speaks to um, how effective the alcohol industry has been at sort of asserting its hegemony in this way. And on this idea of uh, responsible drinking, as you point out, 
that's you know the individualization it's the it's, it's kind of uh, well you don't use these terms but it's kind of the victim blaming when it comes mm-hmm. to alcohol but supporters of the market supporters of big big alcohol people who might be apologists for like myself for their own drinking they might argue that uh, alcohol and its harms are a matter of supply and demand and alcohol consumption is driven by a choice made by individual consumers not that they're profit seeking is driving that demand but that demand is always there how much is our hyper consumption of alcohol or for that matter anything a choice that we make as individual consumers and how much is that choice influenced or even driven made that decision that choice is made for us by profit seeking a big alcohol because it's convinced us that it's the right thing to do mhm yeah um, no, it's, it's, it's a great question because I, you know, in, at the start of chapter one, I think I, I talk about, you know, what, how, how the story of alcohol is, is traditionally told. Um, and, and this of course emphasizes the incredible use values of alcohol as, as we've kind of talked a little bit about, um, you know, the people's individual relations and experiences with it. Um, and you know, all the sort of like benefits, uh, that, that can come from it. Uh, and and these are undeniable and and really um, you know it's not like I'm out to to challenge people's um, own experiences in that way. Um, what the issue is is that the the you know the 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 exchange value or the, the you know the, the profitability of the alcohol industry is is often sort of being left out of um, in consideration. So that's part of what I tried to do with the book was was not to say that um, people's own relationships with alcohol are necessarily bad. It's just that they have been sort of seized and co-opted and really escalated, um, you know, by the alcohol industry. And so, you know, to more specifically to your point, that the the fact that alcohol is kind of seen as, and in in many ways it is, um, one of the few ways for the working class to seek somewhat affordable um, pleasure uh, and relaxation is is not a preordained or natural um, development. You know, it's taken many many decades. Um, you know, more, more than that, over a century um, of of industry organizing to make it as ubiquitous and affordable and um, you know acceptable and all these sorts of things as as it is today. And so, you know, you're in the U.S., which is definitely a different market than Canada. But you know, we can also see this in the U.K. or many other countries, like the fact that you can um, buy alcohol from uh, a supermarket or like a grocery store in 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 many states. Um, is is like it's a contested thing. It's a historically novel thing. It was not always that way. And in, the, in Canada, uh, for example, um, that's not the case in, in a lot of places. Like you have to go to a designated liquor store, which is often state-owned and which has certain hours and density requirements and all these sorts of things. And so the fact that, for example, that supermarkets are now one of the, the biggest uh, retailers of, of alcohol um, is the result of alcohol industry organizing and of you know grocery store chain organizing and all these sorts of things. Like we see this play out in like so many fascinating ways. And I don't pretend to be an expert on on this angle of things, but for example, in in Texas, like there's a there's a uh, ongoing ban on um, on the likes of like Costco from selling distilled spirits. Um, and like this will play out in different ways in different states. Um, and there's like there's a really concerted fight um, that brings in all these different like actors and capitals in very weird and contradictory ways, um, but it's as a result of these sorts of fights in which they're pushing to you know be able to sell distilled spirits in Costco or or the supermarkets or or these sorts of things that it's become as ubiquitous um, as it is. So this is kind of like a you know a, a specific example of of how it is that we have come to 
be immersed in this this world of alcohol. But in saying all of this, I think it it also in repoliticizing it, it also opens up the opportunity for us to imagine what a different world in which alcohol is still certainly a part, but which you know other substances or other experiences might also be a part um, can be can be brought in. So that's that's kind of you know the 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 ultimate gist of the book is to to ho- hopefully try to dream up some alternatives to the. To the current status quo, and any move toward regulating, as you point out in the past, or in your book, it's often seen as a slippery slope toward prohibition. And you write that the racial and anti-port atrocities of alcohol prohibition in many countries, most infamously in the United States between 1920 and 1933, which include the state intentionally poisoning industrial alcohol to prevent diversion, killing thousands of people, often leads to an understandable knee-jerk reaction that views any restriction on alcohol as necessarily punitive and reactionary. The ongoing criminalization of certain aspects of alcohol use in jurisdictions, whether it's otherwise legal, such as public drinking or intoxication, continues to serve as blatant rationale for police to incarcerate, harass, and displace drinkers who are poor and racialized. Is it possible, again, even considering alcohol, sure, but considering anything, is it possible to regulate anything and enforce even what might be considered a fair law without racializing the enforcement of that regulation or law and weaponizing it against people of color and especially those living in poverty? Can there be improved laws or regulations regarding alcohol that would not become racialized by politicians, the media, or the police? Yeah, this is this is a great question, and I think it's something that... Um, you know, police and prison abolitionists have been, you know, uh, like black and indigenous uh, um, women, especially have been um, sort of thinking about and theorizing and practicing for for a very long time. Um, and I think it's something that we we take, you know, really seriously is, um, is the fact that, you know, uh, that there are ways that we can, you know, keep ourselves and keep our communities safe and, um, and you know, in a, in a state of, of well-being and, and these sorts of things that doesn't rely on um, policing and incarceration, which so often leads to to death and, and assaults. And I, I don't have to go into those details. I'm sure your listeners know all about it. Um, but, you know, I, I think in, in specific regard to to alcohol or to to other drug use, um, I think what it really has to come down to is um, just the wholesale, um, you know, elimination of, of police and carceral facilities um, and all the rest in terms of responding to to this as a uh, quote unquote social issue. Um, so what can replace that, I think, uh, is um, is already being articulated in, in many ways for, for many other different issues. But it really is about, you know, um, civilian public services which are not connected to um you know the the carceral institutions that are out to promote harm like genuine harm reduction and to promote public health and to promote um you know these these things that actually um keep people safe um and i i think that this is something that is already underway uh in many places but like it really does require the the front on um you know confrontation and reduction of of police power and carceral power um, because you, you're right, like failing to do that will mean that, um, you know, whatever kind of public health, you know, ideas that we come up with will eventually be just reconstituted, like within the uh, within the carceral, um, you know, state. Um, and, you know, for example, we like public health uh, organizations such as the WHO do, you know, really solid work around 
alcohol and you know what it means to reduce alcohol related harms and such but at the same time they they basically have like a, a neutral if not favorable attitude towards police um you know in terms of police helping or leading traffic enforcement or leading you know check stops um, or dealing with duis or all these sorts of things um, and i think that really betrays it like a failure to seriously reckon with like the deeply racialized and deeply um, you know, like anti-poor, like nature of, of policing. So failing to do that will just mean that this language and this concept of promoting public health will just um, turn into an excuse to, to like incarcerate and penalize um, more people. So um, maybe that's like a somewhat like ambiguous answer, but I, I, I think it just like, I think it speaks to the, the need for any sort of conversations around um, drug or alcohol policy to really be joined with abolitionist demands um, concerning uh, police and prisons. And you write, that's really interesting, you in, you write that in contrast to the alcohol industry's cynical co-optation of harm reduction discourse to individualize alcohol use, which scholars describe as a practice that actually entails harm promotion, however well-constructed the smokescreen of self-serving ideas is. The radical left must struggle for genuine harm reduction of alcohol use, which means analyzing and confronting capital's ownership and control of the substance on a global scale. How can the alcohol industry's harm reduction discourse end up being harm promotion? How can harm reduction lead to, you know, unintentionally, we would assume, harm promotion? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally sure it is unintentional. I, I think they, I think they know what they're. They're doing um, sort of in the same way that fossil fuel companies know what they're doing when they continue to push new pipelines and you know fossil fuel extraction and and such. Um, yeah, I I think what it really boils down to and, and what sort of this book tries to push um, against is that you know the industry's approach to quote unquote harm reduction is like you've sort of signaled already. It's it's to fundamentally individualize um, the issue. So it's really about you know your own individual relationship with alcohol and whatever that looks like is is great sort of thing. Um, and, you know, they, they, you know, companies or lobby groups or whatnot may, you know, make very weak, like educational programs and all these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, public health researchers have showed time and time again that these um, educational approaches are, you know, systematically um, weak and they're, they're intended not to like actually reduce um you know the the ubiquity of alcohol and so that's you know that's the the way that public health uh kind of responds to this is is um and i think that this is where the radical left really needs to insert itself and in, into to you know sort of to radicalize this is that you know the public health approach is that um, we need to be talking about systems and policies and built environments um and these sorts of things so for example if we want to confront um the the unambiguous crisis of, of drunk driving, um, what would it mean for us to actually prioritize um, providing excellent public transit so that people who are, you know, intoxicated or who may become intoxicated um, can, um, you know, return to their homes uh, safely? Like that would be a form of, of radical and systematic um, harm reduction in, in my mind, which goes well beyond, um, you know, just talking about individual relationships with alcohol, or you know, I, I I have we might get into it in a second, but I have, at the end I have this like manifesto uh, of of you know kind of ideas or suggestions of how how we might navigate some of this. But another one um, 
is, you know, to nationalize and socialize uh, alcohol production, distribution, and retail. So, you know, in, in um, Canada, in some of, you know, U.S. states, in uh, a couple of Indian um, states, there's uh, state-owned um, alcohol retailers, um, and they, they provide a whole host of benefits, including, like, good unionized labor and, um, you know, ideally uh, mitigating, if not removing the profit motive and all these sorts of things. This is an example of, of a real systematic response um, to, to alcohol as, as, a, as an issue and as a substance in society, in contrast to sort of the alcohol industry's own vested interest in really just downloading this onto the individual, which I argue in, in one chapter is fundamentally racialized and gendered as well in terms of the construct of the problem drinker and that sort of thing. So I think it's just, it's really up to the radical left at this point to, to reject this individualization and to, um, to not like wholesale adopt public health discourse, because I think there's a lot of issues with it, but to, to take some of that and to really radicalize it and push it forward. So I want to get to the past of alcohol and the future of alcohol before we let you go. And you mentioned, uh, well, first of all, we are speaking with author, freelance journalist, and PhD student James Wilt, who has a new book out entitled Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. Again, thanks to Scott Price of CKUW in Winnipeg, who suggested James be a guest on our show. He is currently studying the ecology of oil spills, James is, and you can follow James on Twitter at James underscore M underscore Wilt. So you mentioned different types of books on alcohol. One that you write is, quote, far less prominent than the others is academic histories of alcohol regulation and social control. Although immensely worthwhile in interrogating the use of alcohol laws in uh, consolidating subjugation of colonized and exploited peoples and nations, these detailed histories <clears throat> often imply an almost libertarian uh, uh, con conclusion that dismisses all state inter intervention as necessarily oppressive in character. Outside of a, a handful of scholars and authors, the political economy of the contemporary alcohol industry is completely and systematically ignored. Yet how alcohols were used in colonialism's global exploitation, that seems to be understood from your writing. To you, what explains the disconnect of the alcohol industry and its history from the political economy under which they exist and have existed? If it's understood how it was used to subjugate via colonialism, why is alcohol disconnected from imperial capitalism? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a good and it's a big question. Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a couple of books that I do want to shout out because I I kind of I critique a lot of the <laughs> the literature on alcohol. One is uh, Olivia Van Beemen's um, Heineken in Africa, which uh, like looks at the recent history, but also the contemporary landscape of of obviously Heineken in, in Africa. There's also a political science at Villanova, uh, Mark Lawrence Shard, who has written a series of books. One, one's called Vodka Politics on uh, the history of alcohol in uh, the Soviet Union and Russia. Um, uh, but then there's a, a more recent one called Smash in the Liquor Machine, which is kind of trying to uh, like re-examine the histories of prohibition and temperance and like kind of read them through a potentially like progressive and liberatory um you know anyways those are two books i i want to shout out as as exceptions to that that passage that you wrote or uh, that you read rather um and so yeah the, the the disconnect is is interesting because like what we're seeing and i alluded to this earlier uh with um tobacco um sort of relocating to the global south is that um, we're seeing the same with the alcohol industry so as as alcohol 
consumption is sort of flatlining or even reducing in um, a lot of global North countries. Um, and this will vary based on a whole bunch of different things. But the alcohol industry is really rapidly relocating its investments um, to the South. Um, and so if you look at like Heineken's, um, you know, annual reports or whatever, it's its highest profitability um, and, and increased sales has been found in places like Mexico and, and Vietnam um, as, uh, you know, increasing incomes are, are uh, underway. Um, so they're, they're seeing these as, as sites of incredibly uh, profitable futures for them as, you know, um, as uh, drinkers in other countries are maybe questioning their own relationship with alcohol. Um, and we're seeing this uh, probably in, in the most concerning way throughout the, the continent of Africa, uh, where there's obviously extreme immiseration resulting from decades and centuries of colonization and imperialism. Um, and in a lot of situations, um, the alcohol industry, um, which sets up its own subsidiaries and every everything, um, is is one of the the few you know reliable sources of tax revenue for for an entire country. So uh, Van Diemen talks about Burundi and how forty percent of revenues come from um, the Heineken subsidiary. So that obviously this is, this is like a massive um, you know sort of political and economic crisis, which I think we have to have solidarity with with. Um, you know, global South countries and peoples. Um, so all, all of this is to say is that I, I think that what, what can happen um, often is because of our own, you know, relationships with alcohol and the fact that we have really positive, often really positive experiences and, you know, memories um, and aspirations uh, to its use is that it can kind of um, impede or cloud our ability to, um, to analyze it in sort of a, a clear-minded, systematic, um, political, economic way. Um, and I think this is why people, you know, kind of respond in a oftentimes kind of like skeptical, if not cynical or hostile way to, to the idea is that um, like it, it, it's something that we, a lot of us have, have great um, relationships with. But I think in order to really begin to analyze it at, at this global level, um, which is really necessary, we need to start to look at, okay, who are the, who are the big players? Who, like, who is making the profits? How are these profits being made? you know, what are the strategies that they're using to to insulate their profits? And so so that's kind of like what I hope to be the contribution um, of the book. And it is really just that. It's a contribution. It's it's a it's an invitation to have a discussion like we're having today. Um, it's not intended to be the final word, um, which, you know, is easier said than done. But it's just, uh, especially when you have a book that ends with a manifesto, but it's just, uh, it's just, it's, it's an invitation for us to start like thinking and talking about this in a more systematic way. And you're right that car capital certainly isn't waiting around for the radical left to complete a global revolution. Rather, it is actively exploiting people's many anxieties and traumas, climate chaos, deadly pandemics, and other miseries to convince them to use even more of their product. Alcohol is only becoming more ubiquitous with every social crisis, and it is well past time that we challenge such advances with radical analysis and practice. How important is alcohol as a weapon in reinforcing or expanding the power of capital globally? Yeah, so we've seen it throughout COVID-19, the ongoing pandemic, of course, uh, that drinking rates um, and harms have have escalated quite significantly um, in, in a lot of countries. Uh, so uh, alcohol-related deaths and, um, you know, injuries and all these sorts of things have, have skyrocketed at, at rates that we haven't seen before. Um, so this is this is a huge um, public health crisis. I think that the that the left, which which is absolutely um, you know committed to to people's well being and, and health and all these sorts of things, should should also care about this too, right? Um, because it it you know it intersects with so many other 
um, crises. And and like in that passage that you read, I, I argue that um, the industry knows this. The industry knows that it's it's that alcohol is one of the few ways that people can find pleasure in this like god awful society, and that people will seek it out um, as conditions begin or continue to you know worsen and, and collapse and all these sorts of things. Um, and so I, I think it's it's very important for the idea that alcohol is a purely natural and um, sort of apolitical substance in society to be sustained, you know, for for global capital to be able to continue to profit from it in this way. I think that this is where like the left really has to um, rebut this and say that people's desires for pleasure and relaxation and like feeling a couple of hours of relief from this terrible world is is not a bad thing. It's actually something that should be promoted as part of a working class movement and struggle. And so, you know, the way that we should be promoting this is um, in ways that don't just contribute greater profits to these massive companies um, and that uh, eventually can lead to a lot of people dying from a whole bunch of different things. And if not dying, you know, getting injured or uh, getting in these terrible situations. And so I think the response is, um, you know, one, one, for example, and this kind of circles back to how we started this conversation was thinking really um, long and hard about legalizing and regulating um, in, in publicly owned and like communally owned ways, um, other psychoactive drugs, because, you know, to, to have these, you know, um, psychoactive experiences is something that has been done for a very long time. And there are like a lot of drugs, which are a lot lower risk than, than alcohol. And so I think, you know, really seeing these struggles as um, united in that way, I think is really important. In addition to drug legalization just being necessary for so many other reasons. I do want to shout out uh, Matha Busby's um, recent book, um, Should All Drugs Be Legalized, which is a, a really phenomenal case for that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that um, the, 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 the industry is going to continue exploiting, you know, every crisis that continues to, to emerge and to reconsolidate. And it's sort of our responsibility um, on the left to acknowledge people's needs and desires for like reprieve, um, but at the same time, not just capitulate to alcohol industry narratives that say that this is the only way that people can find that. So you also point out that through collective struggle for a better world, one in which white supremacy is dismantled, police and prisons abolished, reparations made, drugs legalized and regulated, lands returned and capitalism transcended, we can forge new relations with alcohol and other substances along with alternatives not yet even dreamed of. So just to make sure that people understand this, just to stress this bigger point of your book, what is that connection between rising up against big alcohol in confronting white supremacy and racialized policing. Yeah. Um, so the, the the connection is is basically that um, that alcohol cannot be looked at in a silo. You know, like like no issue can be looked at in the silo. It has to be um, if we're if we're talking and thinking about this, it has to be intimately related because it is. It has to be acknowledged as intimately related with so many other issues. And, we, and we've talked a bit about, you know, the policing and, and the carceral aspects of it, but failing to acknowledge that and, and to deal with that and, you know, throughout our movements will just lead to um, sort of this reconsolidation um, in, in other forms. And so I think that um, something that I sort of interspersed throughout the book is these quote unquote radical histories. And so I'm not a historian, I'm, I'm referencing other historians um, work on this, but there's this four different um, sort of sub chapters throughout the book in which I examine the way that many different radical um, and revolutionary thinkers and movements have sort of dealt with 
or attempted to deal with the issue um, of alcohol. And so this this ranges from, you know, Lenin and Trotsky um, nationalizing him, you know, uh, implementing prohibition of, of vodka to sort of defend the Soviet revolution, um, you know, all the way to uh, to manage alcohol programs in the downtown east side of Vancouver as a way to help so-called illicit drinkers, um, you know, survive. So, so there's all these sorts of examples, um, which I try to lay out of, of revolutionary struggles, like engaging with alcohol as, as a substance and as, as a political issue. Um, and I think what I try to, the, the purpose of that is to remind people that this sort of current apathy um, or sense of like a political nature of alcohol is actually like it's very new. Like it's it's uh, this is like something that is um, that is the result of decades of alcohol industry hegemony. But at the same time, it's something that is like very recent. And so I think it kind of revisiting some of these histories and understanding the connections um, of of the alcohol industry and, and of alcohol use with white supremacy and with um, settler colonialism and with racialized policing and all these sorts of things. Um, we can begin to imagine, you know, alternative um, worlds in which, you know, um, pleasure and joy and relaxation is um, is available and promoted in ways that, again, that don't end up killing or injuring people. So you also uh, mentioned that people should be able to experience pleasure and relaxation in ways that don't end up killing or seriously harming them, which necessitates arresting the ownership and control of alcohol from domination by capital and producing it for the public good rather than private profits. Now, we discuss this a little bit when it comes to, you know, things like uh, you know, brewers retail in Canada. But how would alcohol for the public good be different from alcohol for private profits? Will it be as good, if not better, in quality and as accessible, if not more? That is, would alcohol for the public good cost any more or possibly less? Would the alcohol, you know, would alcohol deteriorate in quality? Would it increase in cost? What would happen if all of a sudden we had alcohol for the public good instead of for private profit seeking? Yeah, I, I think ultimately it's something that has to be negotiated um, and struggled at uh, sort of local, regional, like communal levels um, in terms of uh, what it looks like in any given jurisdiction. I mean, um, the, but the other thing is that we, we don't even need to necessarily like imagine this. Like we have examples of, you know, uh, after the, the or during the Cuban revolution, like the Cuban government nationalized Bacardi, uh, which has led to a whole bunch of uh, issues in which Bacardi has tried to uh, launch counter-revolution to get it back. But um, but basically, uh, the, the Cuban government, in in collaboration with Pernod Ricard, um, produces uh, Havana Club uh, as part of its Cuba export program. Mm -hmm. And this is something that is within a specific situation of, you know, trying to sustain, uh, you know, socialist um, state and all these sorts of things. So it's, it's, a, it's a complicated um, project, but this is something in which, uh, you know, uh, it's been taken and it's been nationalized and it's been used for ostensibly the public good. We can also see this in in China, Soviet Union. There's there's a lot of different examples of this. But I think you know, in terms of thinking this through at the level of the U.S. or Canada um, or wherever listeners are, are turning uh, listening from, um, it's it's really about um, having genuinely democratic control over what is produced. Um, and so maybe that continues to look like what it does today. Uh, maybe, you know, we do continue to produce just like mass amounts of kind of watery, watery beer for the masses. Um, 
as sort of this, uh, you know, this reprieve from the horrors of, of society. But at the same time, maybe we we uh, negotiate that to look like something different and we want to produce other alternatives um, or other substances which can um, sort of meet meet those needs as well. And the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll just say on this is that this really does have to like very centrally include workers, like workers at, at breweries and distilleries and, and winemakers, but also workers at every level of the supply chain, whether that's like the smallholder farmers in Africa who are, you know, providing grain to, to brewers or the bottle pickers who are like, you know, uh, returning bottles for five cents a pop at the local recycler. Like the, it really needs to be thought of um, as, as a serious um, work and sort of just transition issue too, which I think we can draw on from the climate justice movement. So, um, so again, maybe maybe a bit like frustratingly ambiguous, but I, I really do think it has to be negotiated um, sort of at local levels, learning from histories and learning from other struggles in order to really um, to drive this forward. Just two more questions for you, James. Uh, so you write that the ongoing catastrophe of capitalist alcohol production is a quintessential example of how badly legalization can be implemented if controlled by the ruling class. This is why we must carefully and specifically theorize alcohol and its domination by capital. So is the worst thing that ever happened to capital, or to the worst thing, sorry, is the worst thing that ever happened to alcohol, capitalism? Is the public health problem with alcohol capitalism? In a word, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, like not not to not to get into you know the the deep and winding history, um, which plays out in so many different ways throughout the world. But um, you know, for for thousands of years, like alcohol has been you know produced for its you know for its direct use values um, in you know to to benefit people and and their communities. Um, and you know what we've seen is that um, these real use values have been um, sort of hoarded and exploited for for profit, which is of course through the intersection of labor and nature. Um, and um, what that has, uh, you know, meant as I kind of motioned to before is that it's really difficult to forge um, or to reforge uh, what would be sort of, uh, quote unquote, healthy or, um, you know, less harmful or risky relations um, with alcohol. And so, you know, this is why sort of the labor piece has to be central, because if, if we're thinking about anything to do with capital, it, it you know, has to do with um, you know, labor and the, the exploitation and the appropriation of, of labor in natures. And so, you know, I, I it really at this point has just become like a very central part of, you know, commercial and financial capital. Um, you know, there's obviously so many other sectors where, and you know, immense profits are being made and we have to study and, and critique all of those as well. But I think overall, you know, um, that, that, you know, the, the consolidation of, of uh, the alcohol industry by you know really large and powerful capital, um, which you know has has increased even within the last decade or two. Like the the amount of consolidation that has happened is absolutely staggering. And I'm sure like a lot of people who uh, work in you know craft breweries or this sort of thing are very well aware of it. Um, and so yeah, you know again to to sort of answer your question in a word, yes, you know, the capital has has um, you know. Uh, made all of these conversations and, and these issues so much worse. Um, and I think that in order to really meaningfully confront alcohol-related harms, we really have to um, critique and organize specifically against um, uh, capitalist ownership and control of alcohol. 
And I think we have a new tagline for the show, Capitalism Ruins Everything. This is hell. <laughs> uh, James, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for listening to the show. That's always amazing when we actually send out an interview request and somebody says they've listened to the show. So I really appreciate that. We've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with James Wilt, author of a new book entitled Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. So what happens if marijuana, so what happens to marijuana if it becomes big marijuana just like big alcohol? What, how would that change marijuana? Yeah, well, like you like you said at the beginning, it, it would mean that a lot of people are going to be out of work. Like a lot of uh, you know people who grow it, who sell it, who use it, uh, often who are all all the same person, um, are going to be out of work. It's going to mean that um, you know finance capital is going to uh, swiftly move in to to dominate it. Um, it's going to mean that you know immense profits um, are being made while the um, while the victims of you know the prison industrial complex who have been incarcerated for years and decades because of cannabis um, related offenses in big quotation marks uh, are are you know continually punished. Um, you know, like we've seen this play out in Canada and, and like what this is, what, what, like it will, it will look different depending on, on the jurisdiction, but what it will mean is that um, it is produced fundamentally for its exchange value rather than its use value. And so this can lead to a whole bunch of issues in which the, um, the like not so great effects of it can be not properly disclosed um, and, um, you know, issues can come up along the way. All this is to say is that, you know, in comparison, in comparing cannabis to alcohol, cannabis is far lower risk. <laughs> and it is very interesting to watch how it's happened in Canada, in which uh, cannabis labeling and packaging has been done in a very tobacco style way. Um, it's like, in order to drink a cannabis beverage, you have to pop off this like very obstructive childproof lid and these sorts of things, while at the same time, alcohol basically goes unimpeded. So um, I think that, you know, the way that it's, it's rolled out and the way that big, uh, big cannabis will uh, develop will hurt a lot of people, especially workers. Um, but again, it doesn't have to be this way. Like we can fight for and we can win, I think, um, public and collectively owned, you know, cannabis production, distribution, retail, which actually does prioritize um, the benefits of producers, distributors, retailers, and users. And another really interesting point that you make is how we judge the our ability to be able to regulate any substance, any psychoactive substance, based on the way that we regulate alcohol. But of course, we don't regulate alcohol very much whatsoever. So the example that we are given is, hey, if we can't even regulate alcohol, which we've made legal, then how are we going to be able to regulate, say, uh, you know, psilocybin? Or how are we going to be able to regulate LSD? Or how are we going to be able to regulate marijuana? The, the real revelation there is that it's very alcohol is very poorly regulated. That should be the real revelation there. Not that nothing can be regulated, but the but the regulations on alcohol are so poor that they need to be revised and reexamined. James, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This really is a fascinating book. And for everybody out there, I don't care if you're a drinker or if you're not a drinker, uh, but this is a really important book that everybody should consider because it does show you how global capital can have so much of an impact on all of our lives in ways that we don't normally recognize. James is the author of the new book, again, Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. By the way, you mentioned a book, again, uh, Should All Drugs Be Legal? Legalized. Who was the author of that again? 
Uh, Matha Busby. So oh. M A T T H A, and then B U S B Y. All right. I'm he's gonna... he's great. He's he's in the UK, I believe, and it's uh, brand new. It's like full color. Um, lots of beautiful pictures. Um, definitely recommend. Excellent. If it's got pictures, I'm all for it. <laughs> Thank you, James. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much, Chuck. Have a good one. Thank you. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from James Wilt on capitalism ruining everything, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you real uh, feel like you actually learned something or realized that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support, or you can just Come join us at the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party happening this Saturday, September 17th, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is hell, the loudest? Of course, at a certain volume, it sort of ceases to be muttering, but I digress. (laughs) That's a very good point. We have two new responses over at Facebook. Can you mutter loudly? Do you want me to try? (laughs) I don't know. There's one guy here out in Devon who does it really well. Oh, okay. I'll keep my eye out for him. <laughs> yeah. Bree P says, Well, Chuck, if I knew this would ever be a question from hell, I would have recorded all the times I screamed that phrase since I began listening to your show, but probably Cerise Castle's interview in 2021. That was the interview on gangs within the Los Angeles Police Department, and man, has Cerise's life become a living nightmare since we discussed that. You should go back and check out. Uh, She's continuing to write and doing amazing investigative journalism uh, when it comes to police gangs within the Los Angeles Police Department. It is really, really frightening stuff. And I talked to, let's just say, somebody who is in a local law enforcement agency Uh and how that exists very much within that local law enforcement agency and I'm not going to name which one and Cerise is getting hassled oh man like death threats she had to move nobody knows where she lives right now when she does a panel discussion she has to do everything she can to make sure she's not being followed it's her life has gone to hell sounds like she's doing really brave important work that's exactly right wow Um, one more Fabio L answers trying to stay awake during that Ralph Nader interview. Oh, man. It's irreverent. That was painful. We had so many people saying, oh, you got to get Ralph Nader on the show. you got to get Ralph Nader (laughs) on the show. And I was like, okay, huge name, right? When uh, I just started doing the show, somebody told me the most important thing about the show is guests, 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 Mm. getting a big-name guest on the show, and then you get a whole bunch of listeners. Every time we've done that, it has blown up in our face, and the person's ended up being a complete bore. And, boy, was Ralph Nader boring how old was he at the time i mean uh, how lively do you want an eight-year-old to be well 
is he that young? I think he's like 3,042 years old. <laughs> he was lively in 77 on Saturday Night Live. 77 BC? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still send us your answer to this week's question from Hell by posting it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. Direct messaging it to us via Twitter at this uh, um, at this is Hell Radio, or you can still email it to us at this is Hell Radio at gmail.com and that way Dan will get it. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is Hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, like I said, become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get ex- exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On Thursday's Patreon, This Week in Hell returns our weekly review of what I got out of this week's This is Hell. And this week is a bit different because it's not only a review of the week, but a preview of things to come, a preview of the Saturday's anniversary and listener appreciation party. How can I see into the future? Well, I can't. But after my re-examination of what we learned on this week's show, from the need to abolish the anti-democratic Supreme Court to the need to abolish family policing to the need to reconsider alcohol and its relationship with global capital, I will do my best at describing what I think will happen this weekend based on my past experiences at these several This Is Hell anniversary parties we have thrown in the past. What I am certain will happen is something weird, something Unexpected, and yes, something probably completely unpredictable that I cannot predict. Something oddly coincidental, something completely unexpected. And I will tell you some of the odd and unexpected and weird things that have happened in past parties. That is at least the weirdness I can remember. Also on Patreon, for the second week in a row, we are playing an interview with Barbara Ehrenreich, who recently passed away. Last time, we featured our talk with Barbara from 2012 on her book, Bright-Sided, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America, and the many problems that she had with the positive thinking industry that plagues healthcare in the United States. Uh, This time, we're sharing a conversation from three years earlier in 2009, right after Barbara had posted a Tom's Dispatch article titled, Are Women Getting Sadder or Are We All Just Getting a Lot More Gullible? Barbara was clearly already thinking about what would become bright-sided in her writing at Tom Dispatch as she wrote, quote, it's an old story. If you want to sell something, first find the terrible affliction that it cures. In the 1980s, as silicone implants were taking off, the doctors discovered micromastia, the disease of small-breastedness. More recently, as Big Pharma uh, searches furiously for a female Viagra, an amazingly high 43% of women have been found to suffer from female sexual dysfunction, or FSD. Now it's unhappiness, and the range of potential cures is dazzling. Seagram's, Godiva chocolate, and Harlequin romances. Take note. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a dialogue by me and a classic interview with a guest that currently is not available anywhere else online. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast that streams live Thursdays, podcast shortly after at the same place, 
patreon.com slash this is Helen. Please subscribe because we really want to continue paying the crew a living wage, and we cannot do that without your support. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell, or not. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. And Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. Super Truth, the Cambridge Holocaust. As the crow flies, so shall it stop flying and settle down in a tree to watch the Romans dig a mass grave only a few miles north, as the crow flies, of Cambridge, England. As the crow flies, so shall it caw and eventually fall to earth, its feathers carried off by ants to build their ant bowers, its flesh fattening the Cambridge worms, its bones turned to tinker toys for Iron Age toddlers, out of which to build tiny bone hinges. But let us leave the subject of that tragic Iron Age crow that didn't survive the Roman occupation. Few did. And not just crows, in point of fact, not a single person, crow, worm, nor it matters not what animal species, living or dead, today survives from the Roman occupation of Britain. Yet a certain song survives, a song of frogs. So that is something. Let us also leave aside all those dead humans, crows, and other species, and observe the Romans digging. What are they digging here in Iron Age Cambridge? Why are they not enjoying the sunrise with a bowl of romantic porridge flavored with borage and sorrel? Because they have their orders. They have gone from hut to hut in hamlet after hamlet, interrogating the occupants. They threatened to rape the women, cut parts off the men, or break the bones of babies. To get at the truth, they needn't have bothered with threats. The humble Iron Age Britons, most of whom would have admitted to still being in the Stone Age and proud of it, readily gave up the guests they'd been harboring. In total, about 500 fugitive frogs were discovered and arrested that day. The frogs were frog-marched out to the village square to where a mass grave was dug in view of the roundhouse and were, one by one, executed by dagger and thrown into the pit. Astonishing. There really was a mass grave of frogs in this area dating from the Iron Age. It's both super true and regular true. Really, look it up. What's super true about it is, of course, the story behind the remains, the conspiracy behind the tangible evidence, the rumors and innuendo by which an overactive imagination can make sense of the random clues. For example, there's the possible fact that there were rumors the Romans believed to be true about a frog prophet, king of the frogs, whose army of followers, and yes, the collective noun for frogs is indeed army, again, look it up, 
whose army of Rainine followers believed the Frog King's prophecy that a mighty general would arise, unite the Celtic tribes, and throw off the yoke of Roman tyranny. It is rumored today that this Frog King's name was Pepe, but that's a somewhat tart and possibly satirical rumor, and is yet to attain the internet currency required for it to be considered a super truth. The Brits had been saving the frogs for supper, but they didn't relish eating frogs. A bumper crop of turnips had just come in, and they were far keener on eating those for dinner than frogs. They had no feelings one way or the other about amphibious loyalty to Rome or lack of it. They turned their frogs over to Roman soldiers because they hadn't really wanted them in the first place. They had been worried about a prophecy made by a charismatic mackerel that the turnip harvest would be washed away by a flood and had cashed away the frog rations in case the mackerel's turnip prophecy came true. Rumors, prophecies, rumored prophecies, and subsequent adorable horrors swirled in abundance. One rumor that comes just less close to being super true is that it was the Britons themselves who started the rumor about the frog prophet and its loyal following of frog zealots. According to a recently rumored to be recovered text by Tacitus, the despair demonstrated by the Britons at losing their frogs lacked the ring of authenticity. And while Romans crucified the frog they had decided to designate as Pepe, a lot of the Celtic wailing and hair pulling felt over the top performative and unconvincing. A proposed witness claimed to have heard poorly stifled laughter while the Romans were interrogating frogs to learn the truth about their treacherous plans, and when they flogged the frogs with tiny whips, few Brits could squelch their guffaws, and who among us could but guffaw at a frog flogging, if only to keep from weeping? The tiny frog-sized whip, the suffering amphibian, the clownish centurion, or whatever, leaning forward and squinting as if preparing to make a difficult billiard shot? As the crow flies, so does it caw. A murder of crows caught and guffawed at the flogging and holocausting of the army of frogs. How callous. The Romans, of course, assumed the crows were clamoring for a crack at the corpses and gargled bitter chuckles in their Roman throats at how the crows would be disappointed when they saw the frog bodies interred out of reach of their plucking beaks. But the Britons knew why the crows guffoo. They knew the crows knew of the ruse, and found the Romans obtuse, too, and off the crows flew, as crows tend to do. About a century later, the purported prophecy of treacherous Pepe, who may never have existed to make a prophecy in the first place, came about as true as a probably non-existent prophecy could. Queen Boudicca, of Iseni united the tribes and led a revolt not far from the mass grave of the frogs as the crow flies. As the crow flies, so were the Britons defeated, and in the end, even the Romans died. Indeed, no witnesses, nor participants, nor those living in other parts of the world unaware of the frog holocaust or the Boudican rebellion, no one, not even a sprouting fern, not even a tiny mushroom, not even a miniature meatball, survives to this day from the time of the aforementioned massacre. The frog holocaust remains 
one of the strangest endeavors of the Romans, or indeed of any people, and absolutely no one on earth discusses it, whispers about it, or even whistles a tune they made up while vaguely reminiscing about or elegizing the event. No one, that is, except the frogs. The spring peepers peep about it in spring. Pepe crucified, you can hear them peep. We await his second coming. They peep to the skies, eyes teary with grief. Our people, rounded up, tortured, flogged, and buried in a mass grave, they peep. Spring peepers call their fellow frogs our people, and who can blame them? Not remains of the cursed event, but their song, their lonely song, the peeping of the peepers, and that is how a thing becomes super true, through the commemorative despairing of creatures, human and otherwise. And this has been the moment of truth. Good day. <laughs> Good day to you, Jeffy. What's new by you? Not much, really. Uh, I was hoping for some quiet here today, but uh, I don't know. Construction still going on next year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think as the stories get higher and higher, and the sun gets blocked out, uh, the the hammering and sawing and machine noises get farther away so that's nice but uh other than that, and it's also been really hot here how uh, gigantic is this construction going up next door to you it's going to be seven stories uh we had a hurricane here oh yeah what happened uh it turned into a tropical storm which is sad we got downgraded we saw a lot of rain, but I hear you guys got flooded. Got flooded. Our neighborhood, West Ridge here, we got uh, the most rain of anywhere in the Chicago area. We got four and a quarter inches of rain last Saturday night into Sunday morning, and it was pretty intense. We actually, Our basement flooded. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning of the show oh, yes. this week all the horrible uh. things that happened to my home and happened to my life over the last weekend. But I didn't even add that our basement got flooded and there was at least like four, maybe six inches of rain in our basement. And that never happens. I've been living over here for like over 20 years now and uh, about 20 years. And uh, we've only had our place flood once. And uh, this time was the second time. And everybody in the neighborhood was freaking out because it never floods over here. We're not in a floodplain. We are west of Ridge. We are west of the Ridge. That's what it means. We are in a non-flood zone. Oh, and man, still- you could have lived there. Anywhere. Exactly, exactly. And still, look at this. And you had to help clean out your Hoarders hoarder be, neighbor's oh, apartment? Oh, yeah, and I had to use a snow shovel to dig out the garbage. Oh, my God, dude, it was incredible. <sighs> it was incredible. I That is horrific. I was wearing one of those ventilator masks, and I yeah. almost puked inside of it. Gross. It was hey, really that, bad. Uh, that Cerise Castle. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Here in L.A., she does a lot of great work. I was following her on Twitter, but I don't know if she might have taken her Twitter account down because of all the uh, harassment. Yeah, from cops. She's getting a lot of harassment because she's revealing the fact that there are gangs within the police department. Because what better way to fight L.A.'s gangs than just become a gang yourself? It always reminds me of when my uh, f- the first conversations I well not the first conversation one of the first conversations I had a, with a police officer uh, here in Chicago was I said Are you afraid of the gangs? And he said You got to remember the Chicago Police Department is the city's toughest gang. <laughs> hey, uh, I, so she's investigating the police department now, not the sheriff's department, which she already did a. Huge that's right. That's right. You're right. When she was on the show, she was about the, she was talking about the sheriff's department, but now she's talking about the police department. You're right. 
And I got to tell you, the sheriff's department, the sheriff's deputies are real bullies when you interact with them. I've actually had friendly cops give me a ticket or even bully me a little bit, but I've never had a decent interaction. I've never had an interaction with a sheriff's deputy where I wasn't threatened or or told a lie about my behavior. I, and and they uh, they walk around our farmers market there the police police presence at our farmer little tiny farmers market and uh, they just glower and they harass people who would try to park on the street and it's, uh, I don't know that sounds so, like serving and protecting I know it makes a farmers market a really pleasant experience <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does okay Jeffy until next week what stay beautiful. Uh, okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell, give us the rest of our listeners' answers, please. Remember, this week's question from Hell is, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter, this is Hell, the loudest? Ah. And we have no new responses. Loud muttering. Loud, loud muttering. That's what we're looking for. The answers... I like the most to this week's question from hell where Bree P saying, well, Chuck, if I knew this would ever be a question from hell, I would have recorded all the times I screamed that phrase since I began listening to your show. But probably the interview that Jeff was just mentioning, Cerise Castle's interview in 2021. People can find that interview right now by just searching on the last name Castle, just like C-A-S-T-L-E at thisishell.com. Fabio L. saying, trying to stay awake during Ralph Nader's interview. And trying is the key word there. Essel S. saying, every time Chuck points out that This Is Hell is God's favorite radio show and invites people to prove me wrong via email at chuckatthisishell.com, why be so close to proof that This Is Hell is God's favorite radio station or show, Chuck? Korg saying, I remember a 2012 uh, show on the selling of postal buildings in California, a libertarian wet dream to eliminate the commons. And as I mentioned earlier this year, uh, the person who was engaged in the selling of those postal buildings was Senator Dianne Feinstein's husband. And Mark's price writing every time Chuck gets sick or hurt. That makes this winner, this week's winner to the question from hell. Uh, in the 26-year history of this program, which moment, topic, or guest made you mutter this is hell to yourself the loudest? The winner is Mark's Price saying every time Chuck gets sick or hurt. And that's because my answer to this week's question from hell, as I mentioned earlier this year, the most hellish show we ever did was back in December of 1999 when we were covering the battle for Seattle at the WTO ministerial protests. We had many uh, live conversations with people who were in Seattle at the time. On that day's show, we went from one live conversation in Seattle to another. So, uh, so many that we expanded the. We had so many guests lined up that we expanded the week's show on WNUR to five hours of commercial-free radio, and I think we even went over a half hour on top of that. So it was five and a half hours of nonstop me interviewing guests. By the time we got to the final guest, who was, I don't know, maybe the sixth or seventh interview of the morning, I was struggling to continue. In fact, during a conversation 
during the final conversation of the day with the writer Paul Roberts, who's written on peak food, peak oil. He had the uh, front page article in that month's issue of Harper's titled, The Sweet Hereafter, Our Craving for Sugar Starves the Evergrades and Fattens Politicians, The Importance of Sugar in Florida Politics as well as National Politics. And I was listening to Paul and I was just completely exhausted and suddenly I actually fell asleep during one of his answers. It wasn't Paul or the content of what he was saying, which I found absolutely fascinating. And you should go back and check out his article, The Sweet Hereafter at Harper's in 1999 by Paul Roberts. But I just I pushed myself way too hard lining up all the, that week's guests, doing all of the research, doing all of the writing, doing a five-and-a-half-hour show. In fact, I worked so hard that my body revolted against me. I went home, fell asleep, and when I woke up a few short hours later, I had shingles. And it does not get much more hellish than having shingles. Congratulations to Mark's Price for having the best, my favorite answer to this week's question from hell because it was about me getting sick. Thanks to everyone who sent in your answer to this week's question from hell. And this week, all your answers, like always, were better than mine. Dan, we do not know who is scheduled to be on next week's show because I screwed up the scheduling again and I have been distracted by preparing for the party this weekend. And so my apologies to everyone. I double booked the same two guests I double booked last week. Uh, my head's been a mess. Thanks to this week's producers, Richard Norwood. Not Richard Norwood. He wasn't here. Uh, Sebastian Voper, Lindsey Gorey, and Dan Hill. But thanks to Richard Norwood anyway for everything that he does. Always thanks to both Alexander Jerry and Sebastian Vupper for all of their behind-the-scenes work as well. And, and uh, Lindsey Gorey, who has been doing our stuff on Instagram. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth and to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'll be seeing some of you tonight for what is a kind of pregame for this Saturday's anniversary party. See you tonight during our weekly This Is Hell office hours, now back at their regular time Wednesday evenings, beginning at 6 p.m. and going till at least 10 p.m. Downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, where we will be having our anniversary and listener appreciation party starting at 3 p.m. and going all day and night this Saturday, September 17th. Again, that's our anniversary and listener appreciation party happening this Saturday, September 17th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge, West Ridge neighborhood. Uh, with the doors opening at 3 p.m., there's going to be live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related stuff, and the closing party for the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show. Thanks again, Dan. Really appreciate it. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell right. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.